This morning for us in our time of studying God's Word is a bit of a unique time because we're, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a bye week. Um, we just finished the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke a couple of weeks ago. And then next Sunday, uh, as a church, we're starting to study the book of Acts, which is volume two uh, from Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, or maybe the Acts of the Holy Spirit more properly, and to see what happens after Jesus ascends, and all that's happening next week. Uh, So it makes it unique. We're kind of uh, in between this week. It's also unique for me because starting next week, I'm on a study study sabbatical, I can say it. Um, And so it makes me think, what should I preach? Uh, I'm one of those kind of people that likes to preach the next text. Um, And I'm one of those kinds of people that loves church and church life and preaching. And so what should I preach? Made me think of uh, the end of Romans. I didn't have to think very hard and I didn't have to pray very long uh, to think of the end of Romans when Paul is going to be uh, not with the Romans and he wants to be with the Romans. And so he commends them to God. And so in the spirit of that kind of model, I want to talk about God today. Imagine that. Um, And commend you to God. And so we're going to, in this in-between time, between looking at Luke and looking at Acts, uh, uh, do a bit of a topical study and talk about who God is and why it matters. And so today's sermon title is God Is, and we're going to do sort of a top ten list on who God is so that you might be troubled, maybe, because he's not like you. And so that you might be encouraged, maybe, because he's not like you, and he's for us in Christ, so that you might learn, so that you might be better equipped, um, so that you might worship, so that you might be in awe. We're going to talk about who God is and, and, and really why it matters. We're going to look at a bunch of different texts. I don't want you to be overwhelmed with that. Um, I don't want your thumbs to get tired if you're looking on your phone and your Bible trying to figure it all out, and, um, or your actual Bible if you're looking at a paper copy. But I do want you to be overwhelmed with God and who he is, and what he said about himself. And so follow along as you may be able, um, but you can always look up the passages later. I really do want you to be overwhelmed in a good way uh, with, with God and how he's revealed himself and why it really does matter. And I hope that blesses you and encourages you. Uh, God indeed is, is grand. So number one, uh, when it comes to who, who is God, number one, God is Some of you who are taking notes are, are waiting for me to make the next statement, right? And there isn't a next statement. The other nine will have a next statement. But number one, God is. Period. God is. He's self-existent. Theologians talk about the aseity of God from the Latin ase. It means from himself. God is. God is. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist captures it in Psalm 102, verse 25 as well. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish. They perish. 
They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Verse 27 of Psalm 102, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And we might at first be tempted to say, but that's talking about the eternality of God. But the eternality of God assumes the aseity of God. He's from himself. Utterly different. Unique. God is. God said to Moses, what? I am that I am. And you say, I don't get that. That's right, you don't get that. Utterly, completely, entirely unique. We we try to kind of start understanding it by relating the eternal God to the temporal, temporary world. But that's just scratching the surface because we're talking about the, the God who's from himself. Mind baffling. Jad Packer said, children sometimes ask, who made God? The clearest answer is that God never needed to be made because he was always there. He exists in a different way from us. We, his creatures, exist as a dependent, derived, finite, frat, in a fragile way, but our maker exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, necessary way. Necessary, that is, in the sense that God does not have it in him to go out of existence. I am that I am. Someone else put it this way. I think it was A.W. Pink. None but he can say, I am that I am. Always the same, eternally changeless. I can't explain that any better. God is. Now, the Bible develops implications. If God is, then the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 will make it clear, then he is self-sufficient. Doesn't need human beings. Doesn't need them to do anything for him. Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, uh, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's self-sufficient. And we could talk about implications. Uh, We could say that God is pleased with worship. But it's not like he's needy. I heard somebody talk about it one time as far as, you know, God's not up in heaven going, oh man, I need their guitars and drums today. If I could only have more guitars and drums. Doesn't mean he's not glorified. Doesn't mean he's not honored with the worship of his people, expressing gratitude and awe for who he is and what he's done. But it really should, I think, stagger our minds and humble us to realize we're talking about the God who is the great I am. Unique. Different. From himself. 
We read Isaiah chapter 40 earlier today, and I love it that, it that it builds on this reality of God and his independence and his strength and who he is in and of himself. And then we do have dots connected to us. He's therefore the one you want to depend upon. Let's move on. Number two, God is not like us, which I've already essentially said. God is not like us. We're like him in certain ways, right? Because we're made in his image, but he's not like us. Just want to spend just a moment on this one. Romans chapter nine, verse 20 makes it clear that there's a molded and a molder. It's just good to remember that. It's good for you and for me as Christians to remember there's a distinction between creator and creature. It's healthy for us to remember we're not like God. Different. Very, very, very different from the one who's from himself. Because we're from him. Think of all the problems that come up because I start thinking God is like me. You've got to remember he's not like me. The implication in Romans chapter 9 would be don't, don't question God. Don't try to pick a fight with God or an argument with God about fairness, how he should be generous, how he should use his resources, if you will. When we remember God is not like us, just keeps things a little more tidy. The creator, sovereign God from himself made us, we're the molded. It's just good to know that. We could look at texts where the people of God are, are corrected rather strongly for thinking about God in terms of who they are. We're not going to do that this morning. I just wanted to remind you that God, God is different. God is not like us. Let's remember He's the Creator. Let's move on to the next one. Number three, God is unmanageable. He is unmanageable. Another way of putting this is He's not tame. Another way of putting this is He's not domesticated. He's not constrained by our opinions or our speculations. He's under no obligation other than to act consistently with his own nature. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. We like that, right? Our God is in the heavens. He's above, he's beyond, he's different from all the other gods that we make with our hands. Our God is in the heavens, but how about this? He does all that he pleases. Does whatever he wants to do. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, Him, get this, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God does everything He wants to do. God's not constrained. God's not manipulated. God does everything He wants to do according to His will. God is not managed. He's not manageable. He's not domesticated. He's not tame. He's free to be God and act like God, do whatever He wants to do. It's alarming, right? It's troubling. I don't like that. And yet on the other side of it, I do like that. I want God to be like God. Or He's not God. He's not worthy of worship. 
1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, For whom we exist. Hmm. For whom we exist. We exist for God. Doesn't mean there aren't great things that we benefit from. It doesn't mean He's not for us. We're getting to all that. But let's make sure we understand that as God, the Creator, the from Himself One, the above One, the unmanageable One, we exist for Him. And that can be troubling. But it is, to use it in the right sense, awesome. Aslan is a lion. I'm quoting now. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. My favorite quote from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's not domesticated. He's not tame. He's God. He's the king. It's all for him. But he is good. Number four, God is good. He's so good that he defines good. Which is interesting and important in light of our conversations about what's good and what's not good and what we think God should do and what God shouldn't do. And when it comes to morality and what's good and what's not good, God is good. And it's not that he, and I kind of gave this impression, sorry, it's not that he's so good that he defines good. God is good, so he defines good. How about that? And it's his prerogative because he's God. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 25, verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. By extension, therefore, 1 Timothy 4, 4, For everything created by God is good. By extension, therefore, all things that are good come from Him. James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And in 18, it makes it clear that the ultimate good to us that comes from God, the good, is salvation. God is good. How do we define it? Whatever God says, whatever God does, whoever God is. Now, if you're a God of your universe, whatever you do is good. It's upright. It's right. But if God is God of His universe and He's the creator of the whole thing, then what He does, by definition, because He's God, is godly. It's just good to kind of mess with our categories, don't you think? So I said at the beginning, I hope today comforts and encourages you. And where necessary, I hope it bothers you. I hope it kind of rattles your cage a little bit and, and forces you to go, whoa, wait a second. 
Don't, be, don't believe I like that part. But it makes sense. It's just good for us now and then to have a good um, dose of reality. God is God and there's no one like Him. There's huge implications. God is good. He's been good to us. Everything that we have is good is from Him. Number five, God is knowable. Not noble, although He's noble, but He's knowable. Everything we've said so far and looked at so far assumes this, right? This could be a long one. It could be a point in and of itself. It's a big issue. It's an important issue. Here's what I don't mean. Here's what the Bible doesn't mean. And this is good for you when it comes to apologetics also and talking to other people, believers, unbelievers. What I don't mean, what the Bible doesn't mean is that God is exhaustively knowable. That you can know everything about God and, and you can know God perfectly and you can know infinite, all of these things are true about God, perfectly. Christians make a mistake when we, we act like that. But then the other mistake is that you can't know anything about God. When that ends up happening, we kind of start talking like that, sometimes in the name of humility. That's a problem if God created language, and He did, and He created human beings so that they could communicate, and He did, and that He has the ability to make Himself known, and He does. God is knowable. Right? Romans chapter 1 makes it clear through creation He's knowable. Never mind the fact that we, we, we come to the wrong conclusions. But it doesn't mean he doesn't communicate. Clearly, even Romans chapter 1 says. Not just through creation, though, but more specifically because of sin, then we move forward and we move on to the incarnation when Jesus takes on flesh. My favorite passage, perhaps the best passage on this, would be John chapter 1, verse 18. That God is knowable. How do we know who God is? Hmm, if you want to go to John 1.18, you can. And what do we do? We speculate. And we say things like, to me, God is. And then we share our ideas. And to me, God is like this. And to me, God is like this. That's what Romans 1 talks about, and it calls it idolatry. It's arrogant. It's prideful. It's bad. Because God has made himself known. Now it's gotten skewed because of sin, and so what do we need? We need the God who can communicate, who has communicated, and who has communicated clearly to then help us because we've got sin blinders on so that we can then see things for what they really are and know who God really is because of the mess we've made and the mess we've gotten ourselves into because we can't see God clearly. Not because he hasn't made himself clear, but because of sin. John chapter 1, verse 18, it's the classic text regarding Jesus becoming a human being, the eternal God, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 14, but then verse 18 is so important. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, now talking about Jesus, has made him known. 
For those of you who are interested, the word he uses for made him known is the word where we get an English word, and it's the word exegeted, interpreted, explained. A Bible exegete is a Bible interpreter. Well, Jesus is a God exegete. Jesus came into the world so that God would be known. Seen for who he is. How about this? Interpreted. So we're not just left to sinful speculations. God is knowable. How is he knowable? Well, he's knowable through creation. He's knowable more extraordinarily through his son Jesus. Who came into this world. Who became one of us. So the rationale doesn't work when people say, well, we can't know God because God is an infinite being. You could even be fancy. He is Ase. He's from himself, right? We can't know God. His thoughts are not like ours. Yeah, that's true. Jesus came into the world to explain God to us. And it's an attack on the incarnation of Jesus to say that, it's, that he can't, you can't know God. And so it's really important that we remember that. John chapter 8, verse 32. And you will know the truth. Exhaustively, perfectly, no. But you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth regarding God in Christ. John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe and have life. Well, believing what? The content, the reality about who Jesus is and who God is, and that leads to life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You have to believe the truth about Christ. Involves knowledge so that you can know you have eternal life. How about listen to this? Humility can be found in acknowledging lack of knowledge. Right? But it can, it, but it can evidence the highest arrogance. It can if knowledge is readily available and knowable. You know, we're, we're turned off by people when we talk to them. We talk to our... I mean, let's, let's, let's pick on kids, okay? We talk to little kids and we try to tell them something. And they're like, I know. I know. I know. And you're like, you don't know. It's nice when someone says, I don't know. Can you help me? That's humble. It's honest. But where the knowledge has been given and it's clearly seen clearly known, clearly exegeted, in time and space, real world history, with eyewitnesses, where we live, to say, we can't know, isn't humble. It's arrogance masquerading as humility. But now let's not be arrogant ourselves and say, we know perfectly, we know completely, we know entirely, because we don't. But we can know. God is knowable in and through Christ. And then we can talk about Scripture. He's given us his sure word, Second Peter. But we're not going to do that for sake of time. Let's move on to another one. God is love. God is love. First John chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. First John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And here's the punchline for today. Because God is love. God is love. And then the implications come in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. So God is love, and, and then it's 
His love is made manifest among us. How can we know God as a loving God? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or atonement for our sins. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's the unpacking and the implications. And, but God in and of Himself is love. Which is, again, important. We talk about love and that's not loving and that's unkind, ungracious, again, unloving. If we're talking about the God who is and the God who is the creator and the self-existent one and the God who is above and the God who is ever-present, He defines love. So you'll be accused of not being loving because of what you believe about God. I'm just reminding you that He is love. And if you want to know what His love looks like, feels like, acts like, our text unpacked it for us. Gave His Son. Ultimate expression of love. This is John 3.16 as well. Whosoever would believe on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's how God has chosen to love the world. We might want to say, well, I think God should love this way. And I think love from God should look like this. How has God chosen to love rebellious humanity? By sending His Son for everyone who would ever believe in Him? God is love. Oh, further implication would be, so we should love each other. Lots more could be said, obviously. But I'm thankful that God is love and therefore God loves. Number seven. Are we on seven already? Did I skip one? Somebody stop the clock. More to be done. Number seven. God is righteous. God is righteous. We'll do this one quickly. Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation or anger every day. God is a righteous judge. Psalm 711 is a helpful one because a righteous judge, it's like he's being not redundant but complimentary. What does righteous mean? Well, it has to do with his judgment. So God is a righteous judge. It means God is a fair judge. Um, God is a judge who has um, integrity. What does a judge do? A judge says, well, a judge makes judgments, right? A judge, by definition, says, guilty, not guilty. Based upon evidence, hopefully. He's a just judge. He's not going to take bribes. He's not going to compromise. He has integrity. And as long as it doesn't relate to us, we would be happy about that. That's the, that's the kind of person we want on the bench. But if we're, we are, violators of His holy law, then it's not so good. At least in the short run, right? He's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. He gives people what they deserve. Yeah, that's good as it relates to other people. We don't want a world filled with chaos. 
It's not so good as it relates to us. Because he's going to give us what we deserve. We do need to remember God is fair. Right? He's a just judge. He's a righteous judge. Gotta remember that. And one day, the Bible unpacks this rather brilliantly from beginning to end. He will execute righteous justice on all the earth. People are going to get what they deserve. And by the way, that's practical for us because we see people getting what they are not getting what they deserve. And there's something inside you that says, that's not right. That's wrong. Probably every day on the news you see something like that. Or you at least wonder, who's telling the truth? We don't really know. Oh, it's frustrating inside and it bugs us and bothers us. Sometimes it's closer to home and it really bothers us. Because we're treated unjustly, unfairly, right? It's real life. We're not going there right now, but you just have to know that one day, that longing inside of each one of us will be taken away because justice will come. But here's what you don't want, right? You see where this is going. Here's our, here's our gospel moment, okay? You don't want what you deserve. And that's why it's so awesome to read in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. It was to show His righteousness, talking about the work of Jesus, to show or put on display His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just or righteous, same word, that He might be just or righteous and the justifier the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Ha Never mind, I'll stop. Oh, it's like so good, you know? It's awesome, extraordinary, amazing, beyond glorious, that God the righteous is also the declarer. That doesn't sound right. Uh, God the just is the justifier that sounds better it's the same idea the God who is righteous is the one who declares righteous how? how could this be? this can't be that, that, that wouldn't even actually be fair you can't let guilty people go innocent yeah that's why God sends his son in place of unrighteous people like us so that God can look at you a lawbreaker because you are one in God's world and he can say you're a law keeper you're righteous it's awesome so your biggest problem is God who is righteous your, your biggest solution is the God who declares righteous based upon the work of another the Lord Jesus Christ because of God's love it just doesn't get any better than that number eight God is not mocked God is not mocked once again I want to encourage you with this one I'm going to read Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 uh, rather quickly but just by way of setting it up God is not mocked I want to encourage you I want to encourage you because 
in so many ways, it seems like He is. Because in the short run, in one sense, I'm being careful here, He is. God is mocked. When wrong is called right, and right is called wrong, God is being mocked. There's one true God. And what He says, by definition, is right. And so when I say, what He says is right is wrong, and what He says is wrong is right, I'm saying I'm God. And it doesn't get any more mocking than that. It's the ultimate in mocking. So in one sense, I've got to say, God is mocked. You will see Him mocked. You will mock Him. That's which, is, which is why you need Jesus the righteous on your, on your side. But as you watch the news and as you interact and you fret and engage all around you in ways that perhaps your parents didn't observe, God is mocked. It seems like He's mocked more than ever. We just need to know He's been mocked ever since there's been sin. But God is definitely mocked. I want to encourage you with Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So as... We'll pick on culture because it's easier to pick on other people and not just ourselves, but these things would apply to us too. As, as, as our culture throws sand into the wind, it's going to come back in their eyes. Eventually at least. Ultimately at least. We don't wish bad for other people. We wish that everyone would come to a knowledge of the truth and repent and we want to have that kind of demeanor. But you just have to know that what you, the mocking you see won't be true, lasting, genuine. It's, it's, it's a divine principle. It's a, it's a truism. Sow into the wind, reap the whirlwind. Um, when you act unwisely and you throw it into the wind, it comes back in your face. It's not good. And I want, in all sincerity, I want to encourage you as you're watching God being mocked, It's not a genuine, lasting kind of thing. Okay, number nine. God is unignorable. God is unignorable. In other words, He must be reckoned with, at least in the, in the long run. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is what I want to read. Um, again, this is helpful to know, helpful to keep us sane, encourage us in light of mocking, in light of ignoring. And then I want to tie this into our study of Luke just a little bit, and then we'll do number 10. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God highly exalted him, has highly exalted him. It's talking about Jesus the Son. Uh, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so it's meant to be exhaustive and universal, every knee and every tongue confess, every tongue will agree, everyone will say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So because of what Jesus did in humbling Himself and coming for us and going through all that He went through and then going to the cross and being crucified and being raised from the dead, because of all of that, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the unique name, the name that's above every name, so that one day every knee will bow, showing acknowledgement of sovereignty. Everyone will get in touch with the truth. And every tongue will agree, indeed, He is Lord. We just need to know that. Believers will do that. Believers will acknowledge. But believers acknowledge in this life. Because I love people, I want as many people to do that in this life as God might use me in their life to bring that about. But I do need to know that every day, one day, every knee, Believer and unbeliever will say, Jesus is the Lord. Doesn't mean they'll have changed hearts. Doesn't mean everyone's going to become a Christian someday. Hell is real. Hell lasts forever. But everyone will acknowledge what you, if you're a Christian, know to be true. Let's not have that swell up our pride. Let me say this. By necessity every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because everyone will be brought into line with the truth. With reality. Remember, Jesus did all that He did in this life, was crucified, was raised from the dead, He accomplished what He set out to accomplish, and therefore it was by necessity that He was ascended. He proved that He really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, by necessity, if you really are the one, then you really are going to be on the throne. And so when we looked at Luke 24, by necessity, he had to ascend to the throne because of who he is and who he proved himself to be. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess by necessity because of who he is. Logic will require it. Reality will require it. It does make me burdened for people. I want them to trust in Him. Okay, finally, number 10. God is for us. God is for us. And He's for us in Christ. Probably the most quoted passage from this pulpit would be Romans chapter 8, either directly or indirectly, because it's so awesome and so encouraging for us. Remember, Romans chapter 8 is in the context of suffering and hardship. And difficulty, something every one of us relates to, physically, spiritually, socially, culturally. Broken world, solved already, guaranteed because of Jesus. God is for us in Christ, even when it seems like everyone else is against us. And everything else is against us. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 31, should be one of those passages we come back to again and again and again and again and again. God is for us in Christ. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and let's make sure we understand according to context, in Christ, He is 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? See, he's for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Implied answer is no, 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 and no, and nothing. So this great say God who is from himself, who's not like us, who's righteous, and who is all of these amazing things, sometimes amazingly frightening, sometimes amazingly encouraging, I just want you to make sure you know and understand that in Christ Jesus, this God is for us. And let me add one more thing. Successfully for us. Not impotently for us. How do we know? Because the work of Jesus has already been done. That's how we know. It's awesome. So what I want to do in ending today is do like the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 16 and say this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, he says, my gospel, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He commends them to God. He's given them all these truths. And then he says, I just give you to God. I give you to God. Now we know a bit more about what that means. Verse 27, to the only wise God. That's the God he gives them to. And why does he do that? Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all the Baptists said, Amen. Amen is what he says. May it be so. May it be so. Father, thank you so much for... The fact that your son Jesus has interpreted you for us so that we can know that he's one of us. He knows how to talk to us because he's one of us and he came and he did talk to us and he did show us and we're thankful that we can know you, the one true, living, self-existent, loving, righteous God, the God who will not be mocked, the God who is for us in Christ. I know for sure that we're going to leave here and we're going to forget most of what we heard, most of what we thought about, most of what we read by your help, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. May it not be so. May we have a good and clear vision of who you are and may it be what sustains us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.